from the city of Beaky Blinders, Birmingham, England, I would like to introduce you to Paddy Dandar. As the world becomes more automated and the robots take over, it's imperative that we build the right human skills for the future. So pull up a chair, grab a smoser or two, and make yourself very uncomfortable. Hey folks, welcome to another episode of the Superpower School podcast. I'm your host, Paddy Dander. Today, I have someone really special. This individual has not only worked for NASA for 20 years, I believe, he's also worked for the US Navy. And beyond that, he's gone on to a career as an entrepreneur and uh, set up his own organization called the Athlete Foundry which I'm really keen to know more about. But without further ado, I'd love to welcome Casey Chipwadia to the show. Thank you, Casey, for joining us. Thank you, Patty. It's a great pleasure and a privilege to be on your show. Oh, you're welcome, my friend. I know we were trying to make this episode happen about seven or eight months ago, and my fault, I then got distracted for a while, but I'm really pleased that we managed to make it happen. So thank you so much for uh, coming on. Absolutely. What a great way to kick off 2022. Yeah, for sure. So Casey, my first question, and it's a question that I've been dying to ask you. As most young kids, when they're asked, what do they want to be when they grow up? They tend to say an astronaut or a fireman. So I want to know, is that what you said when you were young? And how did you end up getting into NASA? Yeah. How did you know that? (laughs) (laughs) So this is great. Thank you, Patty. And, And I will as I share you my, my story about NASA, you'll see that there's, there's connections to eventually lead to Athlete Foundry. And so that it's, it's a perfect lead and start. Absolutely. So when I was six, I had decided that I wanted to be an astronaut. <laughs> Surprise. Like millions of kids, as you already shared, the difference is I, this kid here, KC, you know, not that smart of a guy. I've got three brain cells because I like odd numbers. You got to have a tiebreaker. So one thing that I have that is still with me is that I'm very stubborn. If I've made my mind up, I'm going to get after it and either help me or get out of the way. That's how I view my journey because I'm committed. So since I was six, I was a kid. You know, most kids tend to change their mind in the week and they say, well, now I want to be a firefighter. Now I want to be something else. And I actually wanted to, and I actually did those things. I was a firefighter for 15 years. I was a a medic for for 15 years. So I did those things and then continue to as a volunteer in my community because I love doing that. But I was committed to be an astronaut since six. And so my passion has been since then is how do I create this roadmap? And eventually the first step one might think is, well, you got to go work at NASA if you want to be an astronaut, right? That's the logical first step. In fact, that's counterintuitive. That's the wrong answer. My journey now reflects back and realize that was the wrong answer. I, I did it because I love human spaceflight. I still do. Worked it for 20 years, you said, in the human spaceflight. I support over 50 space shuttle missions. And what I call the unfortunate honor of being on the space shuttle Columbia accident investigation team when we lost the entire space shuttle in 2003 as it was coming home over Texas and uh, Louisiana and a couple of states in the central of, of U.S., you know, lo- losing the entire crew. Very devastating national event. Life-changing for sure. Very committed to continue to be an astronaut even since that point, com- further committed. But the first question, I guess, is how did I get to NASA? And what's interesting is one particular main way to get to NASA, like any company, a lot of companies, is you have to internship there. You have to, you know, that's a foot in the door. 
So NASA has a great internship program. I highly recommend that for all uh, STEM kids, uh, for sure. And there's 10 NASA centers across the U.S. They all do something differently. They're, they're by mandate from the government. They all do something different. It's not like walking into a Walmart where they're all the same. So my passion was human spaceflight. So I wanted to, to go to the one in Houston, Johnson Space Center, that is in charge of all human spaceflights, where the astronauts are. So I was in college. And of course, there's a couple of NASA centers in California where I grew up and went to college. And I called up Johnson Space Center and I said, I'm from California. I'm going to this university. I'd love to an application to be an intern. And they said, oh, you can't intern here. I said, what are you talking about? You're public public government. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, but you're in California. We can't touch you. You have to go to the California NASA centers. I said, but they're not the same. (laughs) I want to go to the the Houston one. And you would think that it's mind boggling. The good news is it doesn't exist today. That rule is gone. Good. But back then, I was blown away thinking, I'm confused. I feel like I'm in the twilight zone. What are you talking about? I can't apply there. And uh, so I'd call 20, 30 times every single day. I'd call them. Can you please send me an application? Every time they'd say no. They'd say no. I keep calling. I keep calling. They eventually got so tired of me. They said, let me just send this guy an application and hopefully probably go away. Aha, that's what they thought. <laughs> so they sent me the application. I got it. I was like a kid in the candy store. I filled it out, sent it in. And then guess what? I kept calling them if they've made the decision for interview. And so I kept bugging. I kept calling them. They, they would just say no. And eventually they thought, well, let's interview the guy. I mean, geez, let's just interview and say, no, he'll go away. <laughs> so they eventually interviewed me uh, and they thought I'd go away. And of course, aha, again, <laughs> I would not go away. So I kept calling them about, have you made a decision? Have you made a decision? And boy, I think they just got tired of me. And eventually they selected me. And they thought, well, this guy's he's this determined. I guess we might as well let him in. And so what interesting is I go to my first day. I could not find a happier kid in the world than me. It was my first day at, at the internship in Houston. Packed up all my stuff from California. I drove from California. It was 33 hours nonstop with a bunch of coffee. You know, showed up there. I had a bunch of other interns that were starting. And I looked around and I asked, did any of you have this much of a hard time? So you couldn't believe what I went through. And I said, I bet you had a hard time too. And they all said, no. All I did was fill out the application. I got interviewed and I got the gig. I thought, you gotta be kidding me. So, which is the story of my life. It, amongst many others, I'm sure you have equivalent examples of, seems like everything I do is I've got to, I really got to earn the damn thing. But you know what? I wouldn't want to have it any other way. So there's my first snippet of story of how I got to, to NASA. Oh, wow. Fantastic. So you always have to go through the hard way to get there. I've had a couple of those. I used to work for a big investment bank. And for most people, you have maybe maximum three interviews. I think for me, I had 11. And it was just, at the end of it, I was just literally saying to them, I don't care anymore. If I don't get this job, like, it's okay. I'm good. (laughs) It was just so draining. And I think in the end, they just thought, oh, he's made it so far. Let's just bring him in. (laughs) It's amazing. You know, the ones, one of many qualities I feel in, in the, and you might even put this as a superpower maybe, is just unapologetic, relentless, ferocious commitment. If you are committed to 
no matter what, you're going to get this thing done. It's amazing. My opinion, Patty, is really that this is not to say that there, rest of us in society aren't uh, good people. They're good people. But the dis- the decision between I'm just going to do the very minimum work or I'm going to do just that little extra consistently, repetitively, just that little piece is absolutely the game changer. It really is. It, it will set you apart from everybody else. And that's what society, I believe, really needs and should have and will benefit from. And organizations will. So, you know, we all know this. When you come across someone that is that just impresses you because that little extra thing they do over and over, it impresses you for a reason. Like, wow, I want that person working on my team. Why would I not want to be around that person? So, you know, the piece I'm sure you've heard is scientifically proven is it's proven that you reflect the five most people that you hang around with most the, from, a, from how they think, how they behave. It's true. You are a reflection of those five people that you hang around with most. So do you want to hang around with average people or rock stars? You know, I'd rather be a rock star so they could lift me up and I could lift them up. I was going to say, working with NASA, you're probably surrounded by at least five geniuses you know, and, and many more. It's amazing people. Journey is something I would never change in a lifetime. I, I learned so much. I became a better person, a better engineer, a better decision maker. All of those things that that I'm grateful for. And it's really a small bubble of people in, at NASA that, you know, we don't have, for the most part, there's no drama. There's no challenges of behavior or concerns that affect the workplace, if you will, with, you know, going without going into detail, there's all sorts of behavioral issues that people have and drama. And it's amazing. We'd never had, we couldn't, we, right? The astronauts' lives are at stake. Every decision we made was about being hypercritical, hyper-objective in order to arrive at the best risk-based decision for the next launch. You know, there's a great, one of our, my de facto mentors, or he doesn't know he's a mentor, but he was, is uh, one of the flight directors for Space Shuttle. Is He had, um, he once said that, unlike the airline industry, the f- Space Shuttle industry, if you will, is that every flight uh, starts from ground up in terms of its approval. Every anomaly, every issue, small as it may be, must be addressed and cleared before the next shuttle flight. Unlike an airline industry where you land and, 30 minutes, you're loading, you're loading, you go to the next. And guess what? You didn't realize that aircraft has a whole list of things that are listed for the aircraft that aren't fixed, but they were determined to be non-critical. I bet, I don't know if you, most people in the plane knew that there was a whole list of things that were not fixed, but were determined to be non-critical by someone. Someone made a judgment call that said, this is not critical, let's go, right? For the shuttle, it's grounded. As soon as it lands, the whole fleet is grounded until we can prove that we're ready for the next one. It's a very different mindset. Oh, wow. So that, that's amazing. I mean, for someone like me who has no idea what it's like in terms of your day-to-day challenges there, could you give us a flavor of the sort of work that you were doing and just the sheer culture that you have within uh, the organization? Uh, and, and how would you run your projects? I mean, we have this outside-in perspective that everything runs like so smoothly. It's uh, it's like a well-oiled machine. Like, are there certain methodologies that you guys advocate? It'd be great to get that sense of working. Then, yeah, wow. Oh, we got all day right here. Now I have to. <laughs> but 
Wow, excellent questions. And where do I start? The, there, are, Yes, there are processes, certainly like any organization. Now we have our faults. There's lots of bureaucracy, red tape, a lot of it for good reason, because people's lives are on the line. And so we very careful and methodical in our processes. And so very little entrepreneurial spirit, if you will, very heavy on the red tape because it's uh, because of what's at stake. And it's an, ex- you know, everything we do is an experiment, basically. We, we, it's not like we have a factory of thousands of shuttles and, and, and everything is like just bringing the next product out. No, it's an experiment. Everything we do is an experiment. So we have to put into place processes that allow us, at the end of the day, it's about risk mitigation. Everything is about risk control. Most people aren't really good at understanding risk, even if they go to the, you know, lots of risk classes and, and now private industry has lots of great risk classes and courses and so forth. And then those are important, but the day-to-day job for me, my 20 years, I span primarily working life support for space shuttle. So anything inside the crew to keep them alive. My particular job initially uh, for the first half of my career involved oxygen systems, wastewater systems, you know, bathroom stuff, urination, defecation. I mean, this is all good stuff that we all make fun of. Hey, guess what? It's important. It's got to happen because it can make someone sick. It can kill someone up in space. So very important. I was had the honor to be the manager for the most complicated toilet in the world, which is in the space shuttle. I learned uh, an unbelievable amount about the human body, more than you would ever want to think, Patty, and want to dinner, you know, share some things that my family still doesn't like me talking about. It, it's natural to me. It's just normal. They get embarrassed. And I like to embarrass him. So there's an amazing amount of the human body I learned in that journey. Very complex, highly complex stuff. And the latter half is worked on the astronaut's survival system. So everything related to helping the astronaut survive in an emergency in the space, in the cockpit, fire, lack of oxygen, contamination, things of that nature on the launch pad in space, and then also on the way home, that orange suit, you might, if you look at some of the old pictures of space shuttle, and you basically see all the pictures of the astronauts wearing these orange pressure suits on the way to the launch pad. Those are the pressure suits that I was in my team, I was in charge of with the team. We were the last to see them before they launched. We closed my team, closed that door, that hatch before they launched. So it's a tremendous honor to be part of that really important mission of, you know, their life depended upon what we did, literally, because they wore it, which made participating in, in the astronaut, the, the Spatial Columbia investigation, much very difficult for the whole team because they, they perished in our suits that were supposed to protect them. Granted that the scenario that they found themselves in was non-survivable. And so it wasn't the suit's fault. It still doesn't mean that we can't think and feel that why didn't our suit do something? It should have done something. So there's an emotional component to it as well as a, a technology and engineering component to it. But the day-to-day uh, business of us was really about the next shuttle and the next shuttle. How do we resolve our issues? Because uh, we were learning. So every time the shuttle came back, our job, the entire, not just me, but the whole team at NASA is really about what did we learn from the shuttle that just came back? Everything from the spacecraft to the systems to the experiments. And how do we apply that to the next one? We had to be confident that we learned something new and that we could apply that into to make the next shuttle that much, a little bit safer. So we were in a, it was a uh, fast moving train, I should say that. You know, granted space shuttle missions were many months apart, but as you know, it's years in the planning. Every shuttle mission is years in the planning. And so it was almost um, trying to just keep up 
we know there's no time to breathe because we're always thinking of the ne very next one. And as soon as the one comes back, we're already far deep into the next shuttle mission. And if we learn something devastating, we are now in scramble mode and trying to figure out, oh my gosh, how do we go ensure that this doesn't happen on the next one? And well, the next one's already far down the pipeline in the planning, if you will, think of a factory model. It's already way down the, 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 the conveyor belt. How do we in intersect this conveyor belt and not affect any of the previous certification that's happened and, and make sure that it's ready? And, and sometimes that means making that tough call. We're recommending up you know, the, our chain of command, which is we're not ready. We tried our best. We think we have to delay and sort of space shuttle launches get delayed, uh, you know, often because of these very critical things. So that, that the day-to-day -day is certainly about uh, preparing for the next shuttle mission. And through those processes is these risk assessments that are happen at various levels and various boards and panels that we are constantly trying to go resolve. So it's every day. I can tell you this, every day is about putting your critical thinking hat on every single day. Oh, and that's such an important skill in today's world, which is to constantly have a look at things from that, that critical angle and, you know, just, just the what if scenarios. So yeah, I can, <laughs> I can imagine in your environment, that must be very important. It is. I tell you, bet you great, the what if scenario, there's not. Certainly people outside of NASA, lots of industries that, that don't like the what if scenarios, you know, it's like, it, that's going to take us down a rabbit hole. We don't want to get down. It's academic. It's fun. Great. But it's wasting my time. We don't want to do the what ifs. Well, at NASA, that was our job. We have to do the what ifs. In fact, we'd go down. I can tell you how many times I've heard myself say the phrase like, wow, I didn't know that would happen or that I would see that because we had to always think always outside the box and they said, to say a cliche phrase there always had to think outside the box because we really did not know what would happen. I have seen things happen to my hardware that I never thought would happen. And it was down to the molecular level to think, wow, that is amazing. I didn't think that would happen. You know, how did that happen? Scratching your head. And so we pull in all the experts and we have great experts, PhDs and practitioners that were just fantastic at their things from guidance systems to propulsion, to electronics, to avionics, to manufacturing. Just amazing experts and all these, and, and they all came together and amazed. The beauty is they all wanted to help solve the problem, not get rid of the problem, but to really understand. So every skill set had to come to the table with a mindset that said, yes, it's my pro it's, it's in my area of electronics, let's say, but I also am curious. I want to learn to say, why did this happen? How do I understand it so that I could resolve it as compared to say, oh, it's no big deal. Let's just cut this and cut that and get on with it. No. It really was, you had to truly understand uh, the implication of what they're doing. So the what-if scenarios were important. We'd go down three, four layers of what-ifs. Most people stop at two. You know, we go down three or four and I say, well, if this happens, this has to happen, this has to happen. And so it's not going to happen. It's four permutations down. It's really not going to happen. Well, guess what? We have found that it happens. <laughs> so it's been amazing. And Okay, Casey, okay, so maybe you can clear this up for me. I, I always get told this story, and I don't know if it's true or false, but they, they talk about how the Americans were trying to build a pen that could write in space. And the Russians came along and, and used a pencil. Is that a true story or is that just my You know, I've heard that too. And I honestly, I cannot uh, confirm or deny that story. Let's say <laughs> so, 
I don't know. I've heard that as well. Uh, so I don't know what the ground truth is, if you will, of that story. And I'll leave it there. I don't know, actually. <laughs> Got it. But on your shuttles, did you have pencils or pens? We had both. The, the <laughs> per pens was primary. And the reason why the pencils is, is, is there, but the pencil concern for pencils is, is the lead. The lead breaks off, right? Now it becomes a eye hazard floating around to get your eye. So it's a serious problem, right? Imagine your pilot gets this in your eye. So pencils is actually a risk. Wow. I think that just summarizes that whole conversation in that you talked about <laughs> the what if scenarios. I mean, I, someone like me would never even think of that. We'd just go, oh yeah, you were just kind of sharpening it. How many times have you it broken lead? I, I think at least a million I have. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Unless you have those click pencils, but even them, you can break the lead. Anyway. Break, absolutely. Um, the, the other thing that came to mind there, you, you were talking about, you've worked on probably the world's most complex toilet. Like how complex can a toilet be? Is it not just a hole with, you know, a bit of pressure pushing the stuff down? My friend, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought that wasn't the case. Uh, wow. Let's see. So this is fun. Let's see. A couple of things to, you know, well, let's talk urination first. I'll use some science. I'll, I'll use the, uh, the actual words here, if that, that's okay with you. So urination, right? Urination, what's the important, very different male, female anatomy. Female anatomy, very complex in handling urine in space. So when you, what is the, when you urinate, of course, you pressure, collecting urine. And so it goes down the right spot in the toilet is important. So that's first is ensuring that it's, the trajectory is correct down the toilet. So that requires a vacuum. So imagine just your home vacuum, if you will. Don't try this at home, please. So vacuum. The vacuum itself creates a airflow around your body that has to be very specific. It cannot be any airflow. So that airflow has to be very specific because otherwise what happens is it, it creates a tornado effect that splatters. And now all you have is just eruption of urine everywhere around your butt, which is not good. What happens then is, of course, urine is splashed outside into the cockpit and now everyone's worried about dodging urine, ball, urine belt, uh, pulp pellets and then the balls, which can be a hazard and so forth. So, so collection of urine is important as it goes down to the, to the hose what happens there is, well, now it's, guess what's in there? It's air and urine. Well, it's no big deal on earth. The air, what happens there? Air usually rises, right? Liquid goes down. Doesn't happen in space. So storage is premium, very premium in space. So I have to store this, not in a tank that has air and liquid, because that would be massive. I got to get rid of the air. I, I only can store liquid. That helps me be very efficient. So I have to separate the air from the liquid. Not an easy task. We have separators that are spinning, centrifuge, that are spinning at 15 to 20,000 RPM that essentially separate the liquid from the air. And the air gets pushed through a filter, takes all the bugs and microbes and all that stuff out and it gets back pushed out into the cockpit so we can reuse the air. And the liquid is condensed into a tank that's concentrated urine now, just concentrated, which has its own problem. Because guess what happens to concentrated urine? It starts to they evolve and formulate into other things and urea and other chemicals start to come out. So you have to deal with that. That's a separate problem. <laughs> the liquid that all went down the tube, there's remnants of liquid stuck on the sides. Well, guess what? Stuff happens if you leave that alone, if you don't clean it. On the, the feces side, when you defecate, <laughs> even harder problem. <laughs> what people don't realize, so it's Urine is different. You're pushing it out. Well, feces is not being literally, it's, yes, it's being pushed, but not really. The reason why feces leaves your body when you go number two, if you actually just push, all things being equal, if you push and uh, feces comes out, what do you think happens to that feces? Uh, in the absence of gravity, 
it stays stuck to your body. It becomes a tail. The reason why it detaches from your body is because of gravity. It pulls away. Now, again, all things being equal, not talking about diarrhea, which is another problem in space. Even bigger problem, huge, uh, very unsafe problem. So let's just talk normal. <laughs> so you have to have something that pulls and tears it away from your body. That's what separates. So that tearing, you have to create a very special suction. So when you have a seat, you sit down on the toilet, you have to have a very specially curved seat that creates a very tight seal that allows that air flow to be very specific at the specific spot on your body that tears that feces, brings it down into the tank. And then what happens to feces? When we leave the toilet, we know this, we've walked in, you know, gas stations or other places where it's not as clean. You can smell. Well, the smell comes from microbes. The smell is not the, it's the rubbish, it's the actual microbes in the toilet, in the feces that are producing smells and gases. It's the microbes. You got to kill the microbes to stop that growth. So the, we actually have a, the tank has a little tiny tube that's uh, exposed to space. A little, little, basically think of a little hole that's leaking to space. So it's constantly getting that air that's in the tank that's allowing it to actually be ejected out into space. And because what happens is microbes can't survive without air like us. They need to breathe. So we basically kill them by suffocating them. And that's what creates a safer space for the, for the feces. So no smell, they don't grow in the, you know, don't have fungus and stuff growing, all that stuff that's happens. But only that, of course, you know, you can only sustain that for so long because you got to empty the tank. So I, I'm sure that's, this is not the whole story you wanted, but it was fun sharing. Thank you for asking. Oh, Casey, that's, that's a, been such an education for me. I think yeah, I can <laughs> now appreciate why your family don't like taking you out to dinner and talking about <laughs> Some of your work, uh, I'm sure <laughs> a few people will be uh, put off their, their meals. So apologies to anyone that was having their dinner, but it's such a, it, it, it's such amazing insight because like I said at the start, for me, I just see a hole and, you know, the, 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 a very simple design, but actually the engineering that must go into all of that stands very complicated. So uh, thank you so much for sharing that. So Casey, the other question I had now, you know, for a team to work on such a high profile project with so many complications, you've got so many different skills, so many people involved, you need good leadership. So what is the magic source? What is the secret source of leadership that you would say helped you guys really, you know, be led in, in the right way? That's wow. <clears throat> uh, I believe, truly do, that it, 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 there's several components to that. And I'm uh, a work in progress leader, if you will. I'm constantly learning and trying to improve my skill set in that area. Uh, and I always will be until I die. And the first piece, though, is how do you, you have to bring everyone together a, to a common vision. If we can't agree on a common vision, the rest doesn't matter. It really doesn't. So... And I had the advantage, which was NASA, as compared to what I'm doing now with Athlete Foundry or any other project, uh, any other company you can think of, is, hey, we're going to bring the, we're going to build this next feature on the widget, on the software, or on the hardware. How do you get people excited about it? You got to have that common vision. And if we can't agree on the vision, it'll, and I have found, believe it or not, even at NASA and at and Navy, is there's actually lack of that. There's a lack of clarity in the vision. We all know we, what we think we're here to do in the team. Oh, we're here 
to, I'm doing, I'm an account. So my job is to be the accountant person. And that's all I'm going to focus on. They don't understand how it's connected to the bigger vision. Everyone, I don't care if you're a janitor or not, everyone should have a clear understanding of what their role is in the vision. Now, I'll come back to that in just a minute, but I'll share a story, which is true. The NASA story about the 1960s and President Kennedy at the time in U.S. before the moon missions. So he came to visit Florida, do a tour, and uh, there was a janitor in one of the, in the buildings. And he actually asked the janitor, he said, sir, what's your, what are you doing? You know what the janitor's answer was? My job is to put men on the moon. Could that person recognize that if they didn't clean, they're in a very specific clean area, which is very important. If they didn't do their job for cleaning, the next person could theirs, the next person could do theirs, the next person could dare, and eventually led to that person in the cockpit. That janitor knew precisely the power, what that individual's role is in the ripple effect. And I believe that actually is not as prevalent as you may think in industry in today. So my philosophy has been in everything that I do is inclusiveness of everybody as, as maximum as I can within reason, of course. So for example, one of the things that, that in the, on the Navy side that some leaders are doing and, and I'm doing is uh, when a project occurs or some mission they're planning, they invite everybody. Everyone should have an opportunity to at least listen so if we're doing a very time-sensitive mission, let's say, if you're doing a, I'll equate to a sprint or something else, let's say, that's time-sensitive, every morning at eight in the morning, let's say, we have a, a conference call. Guess what? Not just the C-suite or the leaders, everyone. Whatever your job is, including the janitors, everyone gets a chance to listen for 15 minutes to 30 minutes to understand the big picture. Where do we stand? What happened yesterday? How does that affect today? Because when they walk away, they may say, well, I'm not really participating in that thing, but my role contributes to that other thing that we're doing. So let me make sure that today my thing is correct and as best as I can. So involving everyone allows everyone to truly grasp that vision. And that's where I think you start from in terms of true um, you know, leadership. And then the rest, the things that, that we might think come from you know, patience and listening to folks, being objective, but being very specific on clear on where we need to get to and, and what that time frame is. So people love to have a mission understanding, which is the vision piece, what are the steps to get there, the end state in mind, always start with the end in mind first, of course, and, and understanding everyone's role in it. So assigning clear roles and responsibilities, declaring uh, certain, I call third rails, or keep those out of the way, keep those at the door, right? Check the ego at the door. Keep, always keep an open mind. It's about the, eventually we all need to get to that end, that finish line and how we get there may change along the way. So be flexible and agile and be um, no drama. I asked one of my other rules. I said, no drama. That we have, I have a no drama rule. So, and I think I've heard others said, yeah, don't be a jerk. No one needs to be a jerk. So. Oh, I love that. No drama. That's, that's a great way to look at it. And just going back to the purpose that, that you mentioned, I was training a group of people that work for the Inland Revenue here in the UK. They basically collect tax. And I asked them, I said, so why do you do the work you do? And most people just turned around and said, well, we, we've got to make sure everybody pays their tax. So, you know, we're here. We're like the police. And it was quite interesting that there was no one that had really thought about the true purpose of their work. And just like you say, you know, it's, it's really about the why. Well, that's not the reason, you know, if, if we wanted 
if that was the reason you wake up every morning and come into work, then that's a pretty, pretty boring job. But when we delved into it and, and I kept asking them, so why do you do that? And why do we collect tax? Oh, it's because of this reason. Turns out they help fund amenities that the community needs. Like if they didn't do the job they do, we wouldn't have the brilliant schools and all of the other infrastructure around us. Now that's really compelling. So I, I totally sort of, you know, resonate with everything you've just said there about really understanding your purpose behind what you're doing. Uh, that, that's a great story. In fact, it reminds me of, of a Stephen Covey story. I don't know if you, you know Stephen Covey, of course, most people do. <clears throat> There's a research that he did thousands of companies. He went around these, uh, the companies and he just taps people on the shoulder. Any, depending, it doesn't matter where you're at in the pecking order. He says, hey, so what is your job? What do you do? Do you know what is it that you're, the, what is the big picture vision? <clears throat> and their answers, 80% of them did not know what the bigger picture answer was, the vision. <clears throat> they just said, well, my job is just to make sure that I click this thing right, or I, I collect the taxes, as you say. I don't really understand the or know what it connects to in the bigger picture. And that is mind-blowing. 80% plus don't have a single idea what their mission is. What are you doing and why? I've applied that, by the way, that that strategy in my teams on the Navy, for example. And I go around, tap them all when I first take come to a new team. Hey, what do you what is our mission? What do you do? What do you think our mission is? And the results, exactly what Stephen Covey's answers are is that they don't really understand the bigger picture. They're not the bad people, they're good people. They just don't really understand that bigger mission and how their part connects to that is so powerful, it really is. 